Hello and welcome to The 40 Minute Mentor with me, your host, James Mitra. Here at JBM, we think one of the best things you can do for your career is to find a great mentor who you can learn from and be inspired by. So for those of you who are looking for this mentorship, we launched this podcast. In each episode, we'll be sharing career stories, advice and mentorship from some of the most inspiring people we know. And we hope that you can apply some of these learnings to your life and career. I'm always keen to get feedback, so if you have any thoughts once you've listened to this interview, just drop me a line at james at jbmc.co.uk. In recent weeks, we have been having lots of conversations with candidates who are understandably concerned about the impact the current economic climate will have on their careers. If this has been in your mind too, then today's episode is perfect for you. That's because our 40-minute mentor today is the brilliant Amir Nuriala, whose story will both inspire and reassure you. He has proved throughout his career that no matter what the circumstances are, there are always opportunities if you're willing to put in the work. Amir is now the Chief Commercial Officer at CallSign, a leading fintech business. And although he is a highly respected fintech exec now, he started his tech career in Silicon Valley at a very challenging time, just as the dot-com bubble burst. Since then, Amir's journey has taken him back to the UK, into consulting, a number of years in banking, before he eventually pivoted into the fast-paced world of fintech at the Unicorn Oak North. Alongside his impressive CV, something that I really admire about Amir is the fact that he's also incredibly passionate about promoting social mobility. Alongside his full-time job, he's a trustee of Making the Leap and the UK Social Mobility Awards. And as someone who is passionate about levelling the playing field myself, it was great to discuss this important topic over the course of our conversation. Alongside that, we take a trip back through Amir's colourful career to date, where he shares some fantastic insights, including his top career tips for navigating through uncertain economic times and his personal lessons from bouncing back from both redundancy and also a demotion. We discuss how you can tailor your CV and identify your transferable skills to break into the competitive fintech world, even if you have no direct experience and a limited network. Plus, Amir's entrepreneurial and productivity secrets, and how he has successfully balanced all of his commitments over the years, which include a full-time executive roles, advisory work, side hustles, and three kids. Amir is a fantastic person, as well as being a super impressive leader. And I feel that this conversation couldn't have come at a better time, given everything that's going on in the world. His journey has so much to teach us about resilience, perseverance, and staying positive when times are tough. So no matter what stage of your career you're in, I know you'll get a lot of value and confidence from listening to Amir's life lessons. So with all that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with a fantastic Amir Nuriala. Amir, it's wonderful to have you here as a, on the 40 Minute Mentor today. Thank you for giving up your time in lockdown. We always like to start this by asking our 40 Minute Mentors to take us through their CV in 30 seconds. So I know it's not the easiest start, but over to you. Sure. So I studied computer science at Nottingham, signed a contract to start work in Silicon Valley, deferred the start date by six months to have some fun. And I had no money, so I couldn't have fun. So after a week, I got a job in a startup in the UK during the boom, did that for six months and then moved to California and uh, did a a stint at Cisco Systems, was there during the bust, three and a half years, came back to London with Accenture, did a couple of years at Accenture, then did a very long stint at Barclays, just over 10 years working in tech and ops and then joined another financial services firm called BGC Partners stroke Cantor Fitzgerald and then... I guess got the call that made me relevant for this podcast in terms of joining the fintech world and being a, the COO of CallSign. For someone who work in tech and ops, being COO of, a, of Oak North and um, being CEO of a bank, uh, SMF24, fully regulated role. That's like the, the dream job to have if you're a tech and ops person. Did that for a, for a while and then was asked by one of the founders to move over and take over strategy for himself. So that was a great honor to take the strategy role off Joel, Joel Perman there at Oak North. And then that led to me taking the chief strategy role at CallSign, where I am now. And as part of that, I came up with a uh, kind of a, 
a vision for how to commercialize the, the product and make it into a kind of a world-class business. Um, and then I was asked to actually become chief commercial officer and execute on that strategy. So I don't know how many seconds that was. Amazing. Uh, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I mean, there's, you've had such a exciting and varied career. So I, I can't wait to unpack pack that over the course of the conversation. But let's let's start at the beginning, Amir. How did you end up in Silicon Valley? Because I think it's the, the dream for a lot of us to spend some time out there. And you were there in a fascinating time. So what were your sort of main takeaways from that experience? And how did it all come about? Sure. So, um, well, I'm, I'm Iranian, but ethnically, but my, my dad's American and my mum's English in terms of citizenship. And so when I graduated in cold, windy, rainy Nottingham, I decided to look for grad jobs in the US. And uh, through my uh, kind of citizenship that I have for the US, I was able to apply for jobs and I got an offer of a grad job at Cisco Systems. And it was for their US grad program. And all the grads were moved to California for, I think it was five months of grad training. And then you were, you were put on a placement. So because of the, the program, I, was, I moved to Silicon Valley. And then I was actually, luckily enough, given San Francisco as my location. So I spent awesome. three, and a half, three and a half years there. And look, it was, um, I was a student, right, at uni. I didn't know Cisco had become the biggest company in the world. Um, you know, market cap, so market valuation. They'd overtaken GE uh, when I wow. signed. And they, they, I think they got up to 700 billion. So we talk about, wow. you know, Amazon and Apple, everyone hitting a trillion. They nearly got there. 20 years ago, over 20 years ago. And I think a lot of people wow. forget that. And they've never got near that valuation, um, although they're still a very profitable company. But I ended up there and it wasn't you know, strategically planned or anything. But I ended up there, I was very fortunate. It was the bust though, unfortunately for me, rather than the boom, because 2000 is when the bust happened and that's when I went yeah. over. But it was a proper roller coaster. And what I would say is, if, you, if you've worked through a bust, you learn a lot more than through a boom because a boom protects a lot of mediocre businesses. But to survive through a bust, you, you, you've got to be top of your game personally, as in your professional uh, outlook, as well as the, the company as well, as, uh, as well has to survive. And it, and it taught me about working for a US tech, tech company, how to sell as a graduate, how to now managing and hiring graduates, you know, how to train them and give them support, managing pipelines, demoing to clients, being a road warrior. There was a period where I was doing a week of, a month in, in Dallas, you know, wow. so, so stuff like that. And, you know, in, it's a great thing. It's a great set of skills to learn in your early 20s. So you're a fantastic time. Amazing. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's the point around learning the most from the, the, the bust periods is probably very prevalent right now. And, and for anyone listening that, you know, maybe feeling a bit daunted by what's ahead, I think, yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right. It's, I started my career in the, the end of the last recession and, and, and it was challenging, but, but you do, you do take, you, you learn a lot from it. So that's a great point. Yeah. So, and just to kind of add to that, uh, right, Jay, what a bust does is it gets rid of a lot of the competition. So that when the boom comes back, there aren't as many of you. And so that's during a bust, you capitalize on market share or in terms of yeah. an individual, you learn as much as you can, you know, really round out or specialize your skill set. And then when the boom comes, there's going to be too much demand versus supply until the supply can catch up. And that's when you get a massive acceleration. Mm -hmm. But without that bust, you wouldn't have had that massive acceleration. So a lot yeah. of people need to realize that a bust is, is a terrible thing for economy and the circumstances of this one are horrible. But um, from a professional point of view, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Just see it as an opportunity to just round yourself out. Great advice. Through that period, learned lots, it sounds. And then, and then obviously returned to the UK to consulting, as you mentioned, at Accenture. I think we've seen over the years, and I've spent all my career recruiting consultants into fintech and, and vice versa. It's a great skill set to build. And, and a number of execs in, in fintech and tech come from a consulting background. So what for you were the skills that you picked up that have helped you later in your career from consulting? Yeah, look, consulting is a super accelerated learning curve, right? You get dropped into new clients uh, every few months and you get full transparency into what those clients are doing. In many ways, more transparency than if you're actually working there because management layers would hide it from you. But you're actually interacting at the highest levels of those orgs, even though you're pretty junior in your career. They just you come from a consultancy, they trust you. So this, this, just sheer experience-wise, there's, there's a huge amount that you, you go through and, and hopefully absorb and, and learn from. And then in terms of the company, um, they're incredibly good at supporting people early on in their career. In terms of skill sets, they, they give you in training, you know, how to manage a project, manage stakeholders, run meetings, you know, type succinct narratives in terms of what you pitch to clients and how you describe problems, even how to email properly, everything. So just yeah. 
from a kind of a professional wrapper around you, they're, they're an incredible place to learn. Yeah, no, it's great. And I think there, I think there'll be some management consultants listening who I think want to follow your path and end up at the sort of position that you're in now. So I think, yeah, it's a great place to start your career. I totally agree. You obviously made that transition, you know, into, into, into fintech, but I want to start at the beginning in terms of just, you spent most of your career in financial services. So what initially attracted you, you know, post Accenture into finance and, and you spent 10 great years at Barclays where you achieved a lot of success. What for you were the biggest highlights or the, the, the you know, the challenges that you had to overcome in that time? Sure. It's a funny one, actually. When I, when I graduated in 2000, a long time ago, I applied for jobs in tech. So I applied, obviously, for you know, a role with, with Cisco Systems, which I took. But I, I remember I applied for product marketing at Sony. I applied for a job at Accenture, who didn't offer me, by the way. Um, <laughs> and, I'm sure they're uh, kicking themselves now. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, I remember even corporate finance. I remember I went to JP Morgan, did interviews there for corporate finance. But in 2000, I mean, it was the dot-com boom. And you didn't take a job in finance. You went into tech, right? Which probably has a lot of similarities that are echoing with people in terms of what it was like a year or two ago before virus. And, and so I, I avoided finance, right? I went, I went for the tech job. And that's where the money was. I remember in the grad program, my kind of best friend from that program, I still one of my best friends. And um, he was a stockbroker. And he quit his job as a stockbroker to join the grad program at Cisco. Um, really? you know, you, people were just giving, going away. You'd, you'd quit whatever well-paid finance job you had because tech was the future. And then the, 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 the bust happened and the kind of the world shifted. And then something happened while I was there, which I wasn't aware of at the time. I'm not going to pretend I knew this and I spotted it, but the, the Glass-Siegel Act was, was repealed. And I don't know how much people know about that regulation. It happened after the, the big crash, the, the Great Recession in the, in the US. They kind of put that in, in, in place. But by repealing that act, um, it allowed big kind of retail commercial type banks to suddenly get into investment banking. And, and take down that wall of separation between them. And suddenly investment banking started booming. And so when I, I joined Accenture by then, it was around 2006, all of the growth, all of the fun projects, all the kind of sexy jobs were in finance. So that's when I ended up in finance. So, you know, and I, I would say for the first three roles I had, whether it was tech consulting or then working in the bank, I was kind of following where the action was. So, so I went there. So I went to the bank and uh, I had a great stint and obviously then we had the crash in 2009. So yeah, I did stay there a very long time, but the 10 years I had at Barclays, we, we had a global financial crash. We bought Lehman's. Uh, I went through cycles of kind of merging investment banking with wealth management or corporate banking and separating it back out again, different leaderships. Um, so it, it didn't feel like being at one company, even though it was a long stint, I did feel like I was in lots of, lots yeah. of different companies and lots of different climates as well. But by the end of it, what it made me realize was that I didn't like the climate I was in, uh, you know, mid 2010s of its cuts. The crash mm. had happened. Banks were no longer booming. You know, your management meeting was about, you've got too many senior people, too many permanent people. I'm sure you heard all of this as, a, yeah. as someone in your industry. Right? There's always reasons why uh, there's shifts happening in the workforce, but you weren't creating. It wasn't strategic projects. You know, it wasn't, we want to launch a new business or anything else. I could see, uh, across the line, where that was happening was in, is in the tech sector. And, and, and so to kind of answer your question, how did I get into FS? How did I do that transition? I went into the banking. I didn't go into fintech and I went mm. there because that's where the action was. So I'm not sure if that's great advice or, or kind of helping <laughs> the listeners. But yeah, that, that no. was my journey. Yeah, it's clearly obvious for you, you like a challenge because you seem to have timed it or, you know, made it so that you made these moves at really interesting periods in there, you know, it, for the industries and, and you've been able to do some really interesting stuff off the back of it. And I think there's something to be said for following that path. Yeah, and I, I, think, and I think, you know, your listeners need to realize who they are, right? You need to think about what you enjoy and therefore what industry, what company within that industry, what role within that company would then resonate and give you that joy. In, in terms mm -hmm. of doing something you like yeah. once you've got that then your your kind of future looks a lot easier to map out but you, yeah. the first thing is you need to figure out who you are and what you like doing and what i totally. realized is i like being on the creating side i don't want to be a cost cutter yeah fair enough and i think it's amazing how many people stay in jobs that they hate isn't it <laughs> and i always find that uh, so bizarre and i did the same for when i set jbm up and there's something about being your own boss or just sort of being in charge of your own destiny as well and i think I think being passionate about what you do, you, know, just, you don't get the Sunday night blues anymore. And that, that, that really helps. 
Definitely. And if you've never, if you've never been through a dot-com bust and seen what happens and that you can survive it, you've got that fear of the unknown. You know, when I was at Cisco, I did the grad program. I got my first proper permanent non-grad job and I got instantly laid off. And then I got another role internally and it turned out to be a better role. I, I really preferred actually, but that experience helped me for the future. Yeah. Uh, you know, I wasn't someone who'd had a great trajectory, had never had a setback. I have been laid off at Barclays. Um, at one point I got demoted. So I think I had quite a lot of promotions, but I actually had one demotion as well. When you've been through those things and then you get promoted again back to where you were and then promoted above it, you realize don't take it personally. Yeah. There was a reason for it. And, you know, for me, for that specific example, I was in a role that was too big for me. I wasn't ready for it. Right? And, you, and you just learn from that and you make sure next time you go for a, for a big role, you are ready for it. So you hit the ground running and you're not learning on the job. Yeah, I think it's brilliant advice. And I think that point about not taking things too personally, it's easier said than done. But And I, I used to take things to heart very much so. But I think in this climate, more than ever, where companies are having to make drastic cuts and, and it really isn't personal, I think taking that attitude will be, will be very, very beneficial. I'm sure you can imagine lots of people uh, that we talk to on a daily basis and that will be listening to this want to move into fintech. It's the place to be in many ways. How did you make that pivot you know, um, into fintech and, and what advice do you have for those listening that are really keen to make a similar move? Sure. Great question. So I really wanted to make that pivot, but it wasn't in my control. And I want to explain that to people. You know, startups, which the majority of fintechs are, are very careful with headcount. They've got limited budget, small number of senior roles. So that translates into them not taking a gamble. But like, what I mean by gamble is bringing in someone who's unproven and not done the role before. Because there are lots of smart people out there who could potentially do it. But if you're a founder and it's your company and you've just scraped up enough budget or you've done another funding round to bring in a senior hire, are you really going to risk it on someone who's never done it before, right? So that's the way you've got to understand from the other side of it. The hiring side is they're in a specific situation. They've got limited budget. What, what, what do they do? So you have to make it so that you, you get noticed. And I didn't know anyone in the industry. Either. I hadn't worked in fintech before. I didn't have a network. So I thought about instead what I did have control of. And that was my career to date and the narrative um, around that. So my CV. My, my LinkedIn profile. And I went through it and I would highlight the experiences that I had, I had and draw out the bits that were really relevant to working in FinTech, right? And that's the kind of thing people need to think about. The other one is the role. I tailored my CV and my profile to be for one that I want, a role I actually wanted to get. So what I mean by that is I did an assessment and said, look, I want to come at a senior level. I haven't got any hair in my head. I don't want to start at the beginning in the FinTech, right? I want to come in at a senior level. So what roles can I go into? Well, I can't be the CEO. I can't be the CFO, I'm not an accountant. I can't be the CCO like I am now because I haven't really worked in this industry and sold for this industry. So I'm left with CTO was my technical background, you know, head of ops was I run ops departments for foreign banks or, or COO, which would be kind of the more senior wider role. And I thought to myself, well, I can't be the CTO because actually I haven't coded since uni and I'm not very good at it. So the role that's actually most appealing to me is a COO role, the, the biggest one I could possibly get so what I did was I went through my, my, my career history and I highlighted everything that was relevant to being a COO. So at one point at Barclays, I was COO of an IT department. So I really drew out the skill set there. And then I drew out what, what are the elements that a COO needs to manage. So if it's running tech, well, I ran, I ran tech departments. So I, I would talk about the size of the team, the size of the budget. Uh, you run project deliveries, let's say, as a COO. So I would talk about all the deliveries I'd done and, and I was trusted with them and I had full responsibility for them, et cetera. So just I tailored everything so that if there is a fintech that happens to be out there and they're looking for a COO and they're doing a search, hopefully they would notice me because that was the only thing I could control. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. And I, I think it's brilliant advice. And, and there, are, there will be people listening to this that work in fintech and want to become COOs that may be working in, in consulting or, or banking that want to make the pivot. And I think that is, it's so, it's so funny. I, I actually recorded a video for a COO network about how to make yourself more employable. And it's exactly that, tailoring it, making it specific. Because I think, especially the career you've had in banking and consulting, there are so many transferables, but it's just about taking the time to make it clear and then doing the same for your LinkedIn profile as your CV. I think it's, 
brilliant advice and i'm glad i'm very glad that it worked for you and it's it's inspiring for others that are looking to do the same now i know you working at a company like oak north um what a great place to to start your kind of fintech journey um i'm sure our listeners would love to understand a bit about that experience and and particularly what it was like to work with very well respected founders in in rishi costa and, and joel perman so i know you've you've alluded to him already but what what were your biggest learnings from your time there and also from what has, what has helped make them and that business such a success? So, yeah, I mean, like to kind of close out the last bit, the way I landed at Okinaw was their internal recruiter, uh, LinkedIn messaged me and said, would you be interested in a role? Right. So literally did everything. I got the contact, came across. And yeah, I get asked about Okinaw all the time. Um, what, what I would say, I think my kind of summary headline message would be, I would invest in any company that Rishi and Joel are running without even knowing Wow. Without what that company does. I mean, that's they, an endorsement. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they just know what they're doing. They know how to run a business. And when you work, when you report into them and you work directly for them, they teach you as in actively, but you just learn so much also by just watching them and how they act themselves. And I think the biggest difference to me was just how much harder it is. You know, when you're running a, de- a team or a department or a project, there's a small number of things you have to look after, which seem like a lot. But until you see someone running a company, you realize there's not actually that much you have to worry about and that you're responsible for. And what they showed me was just the attention of detail they brought to every single thing they did. You know, whether it was the, the IT architecture, the user journeys on the website, um, how we hired, how we wrote our job specs, Rishi spent a lot of time teaching me about floor plans. You know, the first impression a customer should get when they walk into your office and, and uh, you know, visibility, line of sight of people working. And like just the, the level of detail they would bring on every facet of what you do was incredible to me. And, and there wasn't anything they didn't care about. And I think that's why they're not just incredibly successful at Oak North, but they're serial entrepreneurs, right? They've had numerous previous exits as well. And it's what I would say is it's effort. It's, it's yeah. obviously they're smart guys and they work hard, but it's effort. They put a lot of effort into it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's great. And, and it, it very much backs up, you know, what I've read and heard about them clearly two brilliant entrepreneurs. So I, I think you, you clearly had a really uh, a great relationship with them, a, a very successful time at Oak North. Um, so I guess it begs the question, you've had this successful career in finance culminating in being the, the CSO for probably the most successful fintech in the UK, one of the few that's profitable. Um, so what made you take the jump to a relatively unknown business in, in CallSign? Um, and how did you know at the time you made that decision that it was a good step for your career? That's a great question. You know, one of my bosses from when I was at Barclays, who I see as a bit of a mentor, who, by the way, now works at a different bank that I'm trying to sell to. And hopefully I will <laughs> at some point. He, he taught me something that's, that's really kind of stuck with me over time. And that is... When you get that big role that you, you always wanted, and that could be because you've delivered a huge program or, or whatever else and they've promoted you, don't sit back and rest on your laurels. Actually, that's the time to move on because your, your kind of personal brand and, and, and everything else is, is at a high, an all-time high at that point. Uh, and that's when you can capitalize on it. So predict what's going to be the next hot topic or industry you want to be in, who in that topic industry is going to be the leader and then try to figure out how to use your success that you've just achieved to get you there. Because I always used to say to him, mate, you finally got the big role and then you've left like six months, a year later and taken something. Why don't you just sit back and, you know, lord it in your office and look at all the people you manage. And he's like, because that's, that's not where I want to stop my career. I want to keep going. Um, so that kind of really stuck with me. So I had that kind of piece of thinking in the back of my mind at the same time. Also what my time in, in tech originally with Cisco and then consulting and banking taught me is I've been kind of chasing the rocket ship. And when you're trying to chase the rocket ship and, and jump on top of it, it's a bit too late sometimes. And it's far better to predict it, get there early and actually get a seat inside the, inside the rocket ship. And I had a, you know, when I was the CEO of, uh, of the Oak North Bank, there was a, a frequent challenge we had, which was around usability, the UX of our website, and then um, kind of being as compliant as possible, both spirit of the law, rule of the law. And you, you get these kind of situations where you think, I don't have a great answer. I've got to compromise somewhere. Um, and I'm going slightly digression, but I'll explain it to you. And 
that's why you'll get you know banks with slightly clunkier journeys to log in and do stuff while fintechs will have really cool user journeys is because they've they've compromised on one or the other so they've compromised on user journey or they've compromised on how they're looking at the compliance side of things and also as a coa you're always looking at your your operational expenditure how many calls you get to the call center how many emails chat support your mps scores you know all that sort of stuff and there's i didn't have a solution and then the founder of CallSign came in and pitched to me zia he showed me the tech did a demo and i thought to myself you know if this is if this is a real product, if this is not vaporware, if this is actually built something completely real and it works, this is a massive game changer. And it's going to game change banks, uh, fintechs, you know, insurance companies. I hadn't quite got my head around it. Actually, it's applicable to everywhere. But I just said, this is going to be a game changer. I did something at that point that I only ever did for one other person as well. And that is I went to Rishi, um, the founder and CEO of Oak North, and I said, I-, I want you to meet this guy. And I want you to see his product. And I don't even know if we're going to buy it because we're an SME lending bank and it's a slightly different use case. But I really want you to meet this guy. And they met and they hit it off and they kept in touch and they still keep in touch. And then, you know, Rishi afterwards was like, that's a really good business. I really like that product, really great business, really like like the founder. And so when the time came for me to think about, you know, what's the next role? What's the next thing that's going to boom? The next rocket ship? You know, I'd I'd kept in touch with Zia, the founder. We'd had dinner and stuff like that. And I actually asked Rishi to be my reference. And Rishi was my reference. Wow, he, amazing. He was like, yeah, yeah, so he was like, that's a great company. Um, I think it's a good move. So it, it was very amicable and, and done supported in a supported way. Love that. Amazing. Well, you clearly were sold on the product early doors. So for our listeners that don't know what CallSign does, can you just tell us a bit about what, what it is? Uh, and I guess also what your role there is all about. Sure, yeah. yeah. So CallSign um, is all about your, your digital identity. And then allowing firms to authenticate it and therefore you every time you want to log in and do something. And it could be log into your bank, could be log in to get your universal credit, your pension, to log into an online retailer and purchase something. It's authenticating you when you want to access something online that's of value. So you, you, it's of value enough that you want to be so sure it is who it is. In terms of what the company does, it's not EIDV. So it's not like an on-file Jumio doing documents the technology actually doesn't care what your name is or your address is or your document it's saying you leave a big enough digital fingerprint that we can identify you from how you interact online so it reduces fraud rates because we can just tell from the machine you're using how you're actually typing the way you're holding your mouse the angle of your phone stuff like we actually tell it to you we marry that with location we marry that device and we can passively behind the scenes authenticate you so your user journey is slick there's not these weird logins and text message codes and then type it in here and all of that disappears behind the scenes we can authenticate who you are it's been signed off by people at the european banking authority so even for the toughest standards it's been signed off and they've actually said it's their preferred way and the tech has all been built in-house in the uk by the permanent employees and it's all ip as well so when you look at what's the next industry for me i could see there's a massive issue with how people compromise user experience with compliance so i knew this was going to be a good space and then i saw a product that's been built it's real it's been sold to the biggest bank in the uk and it's still a startup and the tech's all in-house and it's all ip you know and so i thought like if this is all real a bit like oakland if this is all real this is going to be this is going to be amazing and that's why i came across yeah and in terms of look my role my role um I said at the start, it was to be strategy. And then they asked me to kind of execute on the strategy. So I'm the chief commercial officer. So I'm responsible for kind of our, um, our commercial uh, initiatives for the, for the business and as we ramp up our revenue and then become, I, I think, the next big name in, in European um, tech. And I'm, and I'm pretty confident we're going to get there as well. Love that ambition. That's awesome. <laughs> well, I've uh, JBM's partnered with CoolSign for a couple of years. I drank the Kool-Aid a long time ago. I think it's an amazing business. Um, and I'm delighted you're there because I think uh, it's got a cracking team and I think uh, it has every chance of going all the way. So I guess as, you, as you're looking to scale up, make the digital world more secure, effectively, culture is super important for any business uh, to truly succeed, I believe. To, you've got to have a great culture. So how would you describe CoolSign's culture? culture that you're building and and how have the business reacted to COVID-19 and and the challenges that come with that? So look, I mean, I, I think with any any startup, the culture is kind of a manifestation of the of the culture of the founders. And we're very lucky. I mean, the culture at CallSign is great. And that's because 
are very actively involved. Founders have, have just a great way of operating themselves. They passionately believe in supporting their employees and their, their customers who buy from them and, and the customer's customers. You know, as an example, uh, one of our values is to respect the privacy of, of the end users. Uh, all the technology is being built ground up to be privacy compliant. So when things like GDPR came out, um, the product was already GDPR compliant. It's not, it's not spying on you or snooping on you. It's just saying when you want to log in, we can do some background checks on you without knowing your name or address, but just less intrusive ways and, and, and just prove who you are. It, so the, so the, culture, the culture is brilliant. In light of COVID-19, you know, that, that's an interesting one. We're, we're a cloud-based business. You know, we haven't got a data center. There are no servers in the office. So when we had our kind of Exco meeting to decide, what do we do? Do we go remote working? What do we tell our clients? Because we're selling, obviously. We're, we're a SaaS yeah. fintech. You know, how do you speak to clients and tell them that all our staff are now remote, but give them reassurance? And we came to the conclusion that, well, we're a cloud-based business. We've always said we're cloud-based. If anything, this proves it. Right? This proves that our tech is what it says it is. Yeah. Um, and, and by us all remote, working remotely and no one even noticing, obviously we'll inform them, but there'll be no, no noticeable change at all. It's a proof of it. So we switched overnight to remote working, obviously informed our clients beforehand. They were very supportive. Um, they actually said, some of the banks said, uh, you've actually convinced us to, to start doing this as well. So it wasn't like, why are you doing that? Or what about our support levels? They were like, right, yeah, you're a trigger for us as well. We're going to do it do it as well so yeah switched over and we've not really had anything noticeable and then you know culturally a lot of effort's gone into how do you keep a company connected when literally every single employee is now assuming that no one's married and working the same company um (laughs) you know every single employee is now separated and so we've adapted um we've adapted in in terms of how we feel connected so we do um, weekly all hands now instead of instead of like a monthly teams are doing daily stand-ups um, so everyone, even though there isn't a topic, they're, they're just talking and seeing each other's faces. Where we did pub quizzes, now we do Zoom-based quizzes with musical rounds and all the rest of it. <laughs> what we used to do at the All Hands do like free pizza in the office. We, we send employees Amazon vouchers now. Amazing. You know, little touches like that. They don't cost the company a lot, but they show that you still care and um, you still want to treat people in the same way than when they were in, when they're in the office. I, I, personally, I, I really appreciate it. And I think everyone else does as well. Yeah. I think it's the, the little, as you said, the little things that it's thoughtful, it's human. It's, um, and I think, yeah, it, it says a lot about the culture and, and I know that you've been able to, because of that culture, you've been able to attract some really high caliber people, yourself included. So in terms of hiring, uh, how do you know, you know, a call sign person when you see one and, and what advice would you have for any scale up leaders that are listening to this in terms of who may be having some uh, struggles at the moment, knowing how to hire the right talent? It always goes back to what, what, what are you looking for? So personally, as a CCO, I'm, I'm looking for commercial people. That means we want personalities uh, that resonate with a client they meet for the first time. Um, they need to have a hunger and willingness to chase. And that hunger is not you know, age-related. It's just a general hunger to be successful and to maximize the chances of a, of a sale because ultimately we're a SaaS and, and we are a revenue-making business. Because of where we are and, and kind of the scale of our business at the moment, I am looking for domain knowledge. We're in the authentication space. So there is a knowledge element that people have to have, unfortunately. And then in terms of culture, we, our tech is not coming in and saying, we do the same as everyone else, but we're cheaper. We're saying we've, we're thinking about this from a completely different perspective. So it's disruption. So we are also looking for people who are, who are disruptive, not in terms of, you know, back of the classroom shouting, but more, they don't want to just incrementally improve things. They want to have that consultative conversation about completely changing the way someone thinks about a problem. So that, that is, that is a skill set. It's not one that you can say you've studied something or whatever else. It's a mindset and it's kind of a track record of, 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 of proving you can shift the mindset. So I think, yeah, I think it's a marrying of all of those is the yeah. ideal candidate if you have any. Yeah, no, that, that's great. Obviously, JVM have loads of those. <laughs> I wanted to come on Amir to talk a bit about entrepreneurship because you you are a very entrepreneurial person. Um, and But I think some of our listeners may be surprised that you've been very busy you've had very high profile senior roles but you're also a big fan of the side hustle so i know when you worked at barclays you ran a number of e-commerce startups i think over five years so what initially got you into 
entrepreneurship and and was that always part of the plan to have a side hustle yeah i've always been that guy uh, i came from a very academic family who i would say are not very entrepreneurial and i think that was always going to lead to one or two things one being i will go the exact same route and go for a phd and the other one being that i'm going to rebel and be different and you know i was the guy who'd go on the school economics trip to paris and uh, when we stop off at the Hypermarge, buy a kind of a multi-pack of Coke and sell individual cans on the coach back to make a bit of money, nice. um, you know, <laughs> which is the North London boy in me. And so I always wanted to start a tech startup. You know, I did one in 2000 and I worked in one. I worked in a, in a massive one in California. And so it was always back of my mind. And so I, I set one up with a, with a good friend of mine and ran it for about five years. I think we probably ended it about three to five years too early. Uh, in terms of, I think it would have actually been successful. Some of the things that we were pushing, like trying to bring in um, vapes, kind of e-cigs to the UK, DNA tests, stuff like that. Oh, wow. Um, everyone's doing that. Yeah. Right? Oh, and, uh, and I'm not saying I'm not saying I'm resentful or you know angry every time I see that. But <laughs> but I had a lot of those domain names and I had a startup trying to sell them. But I was working every morning and evening, right? I'd get up early before work. I was doing the IT side of things. I was in charge of the website. Um, I had the helpline. I had to do all the ordering with the suppliers. So I would do it before work. I would do it after work. And it, something had to give. And, and I picked my career and, I, and I'm happy with that. And if anything, it taught me the importance of market fit. You might have a great product, but the market might not be ready for it. And that's something I think a lot of people miss when they join a startup. They think this, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. But it, it might not be something the market actually wants at that time it might be ahead of its time and that's that's what i think was the, was the case there yeah so yeah i've always been entrepreneurial i've got my comics on the wall um behind yeah. me i'm always Love buying it. and <laughs> always buying and selling and trying to upgrade my collection so yeah my wife will definitely tell you that i do like it. <laughs> good stuff good stuff and would you advise others that um might be in a corporate role but have that yearning that entrepreneurialism within would you advise them to try and do something on the side before they maybe make that pivot into to going going into maybe a startup yeah I mean, you learn so much. You would know, Jane, you're running a business, right? You learn yeah. the importance of cash flow. Like yeah, anyone can say, I understand cash flow and why it's important. But if you actually run a business uh, and you have expenditures that are fixed, plus the variables on top, you don't really understand the importance of cash flow, right? Yeah, very true. Especially at times like this. <laughs> Especially not at this, right? So, I mean, there are lots of things that taught me that um, made me better as someone who couldn't own a P&L. Totally. Well, on top of all these things we've talked about, I know you're, you're also a trustee of Making the Leap and are passionate about social mobility. So I wanted to shine a light on that because it's something that I am, uh, I think is incredibly important. So what does Making the Leap do and why is that topic so important for you? Sure. So Making the Leap itself is a charity focused on giving people from a socially uh, or economically disadvantaged background a way to get their first professional job. It has a training center in West London. Uh, it run, well, it used to run pre-virus two-week physical courses where you would teach people who come from a family where no one's been to uni, no one's got an office job. In fact, they might, no one, in, no one in their home might have a job, but they, but they want to be different. And it just teaches them everything from, from how to dress, how to shake hands, how to look people in the eyes, how to write a CV, how to do a phone interview, how to do a you know, physical interview. Because academically, these kids have done well. Uh, or these young adults, I should say, and they're smart enough, but they haven't got the confidence. They just don't think things are possible for people like them. So it's just showing them what's possible, showing them there are people from that similar background who've, who've achieved it and raising, raising their, their kind of soft skills set and yeah. then raising, raising their aspirations. In terms of the topic, like, I, think, I think it's one of the most important topics in the world, especially right now. You know, I, I was very lucky. I, my parents came here to do their PhDs. The revolution happened in Iran and it kind of, we lost everything and it reset everything. Most of my family would go to the local state school. I went to the local state school and at the age of 11, I was fortunate enough that um, I got what was called at the time a government assisted place where the government would effectively give you a scholarship to go to a private school because I, I was uh, of an academic level um, that enabled me to get that. And, I, and that changed my life, right? It changed what I thought was possible, what someone like me could achieve, what, um, you know, what, when you see what everyone else is doing and what they think they should be doing, and you see yourself in that classroom with them, and you're as good as them, if not better, you think, well, why can't I do that as well? Where before you just didn't think it was possible. So, so I'm very kind of passionate about the topic. I think when, when young adults, young people 
think they have no opportunity, they lose hope. And yeah. when people lose hope, that's when we have unrest. That's when people protest. I'm not saying protesting is bad, but sometimes they're protesting because they're just saying, there is no future for me. Right? They're not actually asking for anything. They're saying, there is no future for me. I am unhappy. And I think a lot of that can be avoided and the world can just become a better place and more diverse if we just figure out a way to give people from those kind of backgrounds um, the opportunity to achieve what their potential deserves. Yeah, I think that's it's a, so important. Uh, I actually I really relate to that. I went to a school school called Christ Hospital, which is is one of the last remaining truly charitable schools in the country, and a huge proportion come from single parent homes and often quite challenging backgrounds and are given means tested places, many of whom don't pay anything at all. And the opportunities you can get off the back of that are are incredible. So yeah, I think if anyone's listening, uh, interested in this topic, check out Making the Leap. And um, yeah, I'm actually, yeah, it's, it's, it's something that I think we should all do our part to, to help support. Definitely. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a great charity. They've got very, very low overheads. They don't spend money on marketing or PR which is why they've got a kind of a, a lower brand awareness than big charities, but it means they don't waste money. You know, yeah. like I think like 86p of every pound is actually spent on, on, on young adults, which is, which is incredibly low for any, yeah. for any organization, let alone a charity. And they've done a great pivot. They're on Zoom like we are right now. Awesome. And they've, they've adapted and they've said, you know, actually kids are stuck, young adults are stuck, stuck at home. They've got more spare time than before. And actually they're more focused because they're at home. <laughs> Let's shift our classes to Zoom. So yeah, definitely, definitely go and Google making a leap and, and jump on it. Great stuff. Great stuff. Well, that's one of a plethora of things that you, you, you have to contend with in your busy life. I'm amazed at how, how much you've been able to achieve. And you do all this, I know, balancing commitments of being an exec, doing the, the charitable work, but also you have three kids uh, at home. So uh, I guess there'll be lots of people listening that are just probably in this time particularly struggling to juggle uh, lots of different responsibilities. So how do you manage that? Have you got any tips for people listening in a similar situation? Marry well. Um, <laughs> I'm very lucky. Good I, have, I, have, I have the most supportive wife you could you could possibly have. You know, she's. I wouldn't achieve half of what I have without her. She's got arguably a bigger job than I do, and uh, I will happily admit she she does more with the kids than I do even. And she's a you know she's an involved mother, a great wife. So I'm I'm just I'm more. I think you should be asking her that question the more yeah. than me because I'm more <laughs> impressed with how she does it than than how I've done it. What I would say, and I think both of us would say this, is when you do a job you like, your job doesn't become work. And so the work-life balance gets blended because you're not balancing them. It's all part of the same thing. Your work gives you enjoyment. It's part of your life, just like your, your family life and your, your home life. So that, that, I think, makes it a lot easier. But I don't have any tips of how to be less busy. I mean, no. we are just always busy. But yeah. that's, a, that's yeah. a choice we make, and that's because we're doing jobs we really like. Yeah, definitely. And I guess like, like many of us out there at the moment, you're getting to spend more time with the kids, you know, being stuck at home at the moment, which is a, is a, is a, is a great thing for us all. The last sort of question a minute before we kind of get to our final three wrap up questions. Um, you are definitely one of, if not the most, you're one of the most well-networked people that I know. So tell me, have you always been that sort of people person? Because it's, it's networking can sometimes have this kind of dirty connotations. And, I, and I'm a people person that, that is, I think, quite effective at networking. And I don't see it as that sort of negative thing. But there are lots of people that I think struggle with it. So I would love to kind of get your thoughts on, you know, how people could do that more effectively and just kind of your, your thoughts on that. Yeah, look, I, I, it's funny. I don't think I'm a sociable person. You know, I, I like to sit with my comics in my room. Where <laughs> I'm quite happy in my own company. I acknowledge I know a lot of people and a very varied and random mix of people. And, I, and I always, I've always had a very random and wide group of friends. And I think that's because I just embrace different things and like finding out about different things. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I don't do the same thing. As, as my wife will tell you, I'm always picking up a new interest and then moving on to another one. So I do like variety, but at the same time, I get, I, I get especially recently, I've having a lot of people telling me I'm very well networked and I, I, don't, I don't see it, but I, <laughs> I kind of acknowledge it. If I had to say anything, what I would say is always approach networking in the opposite of what the word and the connotation that you said suggests. And that is actually offer to help people without asking for anything back. And when you do that, people will, will always come and, and help you even when you don't want it. 
I remember when I, someone leaked that I'd left Oakenorf and I was on, mm-hmm. I was on paternity leave. So I was, I was keeping, I was at home with our, with our third. I had signed a contract with CallSign, but um, there's a PR reasons, wasn't allowed to talk about it, whatever else. And I had so many people reach out to me and say, oh, I've heard you just left Oak North. Can I help you out with a role? You know, um, that kind of thing. And I was really touched. Um, <laughs> I was a bit offended that people thought I didn't, I, I, you know, I'd been fired and <laughs> hadn't got a job, but I was really, really touched that so many people reached out. So yeah, I, like, treat, you know, treat someone how you'd like to be treated in any scenario. So that all the people who reached out, I'm sure they would, have, they would like people to reach out to them if they were in the situation that they thought I was uh, in. And that will mean people want to be happy to stay connected to you, um, no matter where you work or, or what's happened. And in, in terms of general networking, what I would say is don't pre- pretend to be someone you're not. Don't pretend to be cool or super successful or senior. Be human. Show frailty, right? When you've just woken up and you've been up all night and, you know, the kids are a nightmare and, you know, you're wearing yesterday's clothes, just tell people, right? Yeah. It, will, it will help them relate to you. They won't think you're a robot. They'll, they'll think you're just like them. But everyone else has got the same problems. Just yeah. don't, be, don't be afraid to share them. When you share them, everyone else will join in and, and share them as well, right? So I would say be human. And then if you actually want something from someone, don't waste their time. Do your research. Make sure it's really relevant. Ask for it uh, you know, in a really kind of concise, succinct way. Don't just randomly cold call. Well, you can do that. But, and, but saying is don't just say nothing. Boom, boom, this is what I would like. This is how it's going to help me. Is there anything you can please do? If, it, if it's like that and someone doesn't have to figure it out, they're going to be way more likely to be able to help you yeah. out. So, so I, think, I think that research you can put in is, is really careful. And, and if anything, right now, with everyone stuck at home and you know, going stir crazy, people are going to be open to a, to a cold call reach out yeah. um, because they've got nothing else to do. Yeah, totally. No, great advice, Amir. And um, I think that that point about just being your authentic self is so important, uh, especially now. I think we're all able, everyone is in the same boat. My daughter has gate crashed so many Zooms wanting to chat and like with her dollies and, and you know, wanting to play football. Um, so I think, you know, it, it, I think it just makes us all more human. And, and actually, you know, that much, I, 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 I'd much prefer to talk to people that are like that than some sort of cold robot or corporate schmoozer <laughs> yeah i mean like i think it was three weeks ago i was presenting to a potential client and they'd said something and i was like doing that whole kind of respectful uh, i hear what you're saying i'm not quite sure i agree with it you know let me explain why and i was going to give my big kind of sales pitch and at that point my 10 year old's kind of arms came into the view the camera <laughs> grabbed my neck i said i want an ipad now um <laughs> I I, I didn't know what to do I I completely lost my train of thought um, was speechless for about five seconds just staring at the camera and then a guy on the other end just said "Uh, mate I've got three kids don't worry about it I <laughs> love that. Love that. And, that's, and, that, and if anything, I'm sure right people now, listening will have been in that situation. Definitely. Yeah, everyone's been in that situation. Yeah, and they don't hide it. Don't like try to go on mute and, and frantically you know, wait, <laughs> wait someone off like, like the BBC guy you know, in Korea. Oh, yeah. Just own it and say, look, yeah. uh, really sorry, I've got someone screaming. Just give me one second. And everyone will go, thank God, I've got the same yeah. situation. And frankly, I think I've always been of the opinion if people don't get on board with that or have a problem with it, they're probably not the sorts of people you want to be doing business with anyway. Well, Amir, I've, I've loved this chat and we're pretty much at the end. I've got three final questions for you that we always like to ask. Mentorship is obviously something I'm passionate about. So what does mentorship mean to you? And have you ever had any mentors along the way? So I've never had an, one single mentor. I would describe it as I've had a bunch of people who I've worked for or worked with that I've kind of watched and listened to and uh, learned from and kind of admired up close or from afar. And then without thinking about it, I've naturally kept in touch with them, even if infrequently, you know, even if it's like an annual WhatsApp or LinkedIn message or something, you know, or a Christmas meme or something, but I've kind of kept in touch with them. So what I would say is a mentor doesn't need to be someone who helps you out actively. It could be just someone that you go to for a very specific scenario, let alone just day-to-day type advice. And and there's a lot of people like that um, who I've kind of learned from and, and, and lent on. And then the other thing I would say is, you know, some people will despair and say, oh, you know, I've got a bad boss. I'm not learning anything from my boss. Uh, I've learned a lot from bosses I, I didn't think were that good in terms of, you know, what I don't want to be. 
And when I get to that level, how I'm not going to act and, and generally, therefore, what support I am going to give to people to, that work for me and keep them more motivated and help them grow. So, you know, every situation, you know, that looks good or bad actually has an opportunity for you to learn from. Yeah, great. No, th- thanks for that, Amir. And I think there's, that's, that's great advice, uh, particularly for those listening who hate their boss. <laughs> and it would be remiss of me not, not asking, but, you know, you've joined a rocket ship in CoolSign. Very exciting times ahead. What are your personal goals for the next uh, sort of year and, and, and what are you hoping to achieve with CoolSign? Well, for me personally, this is the first time I'm, I'm taking the P&L of a, of, a, of, a, of a big tech startup. Uh, so I want to show I can do it and I can do it very, very well. So that means kind of direct terms, hitting uh, and exceeding our growth targets, uh, hiring and growing teams to, to, to achieve that. So, you know, go to market, market fit, uh, sales collateral, uh, the culture of the team, pipeline management, all those kind of things I want to build out in the company and, and, and build it out well. I'm really, really enjoying doing that and I, I just want to execute on it. And more importantly, have this company fulfill the potential of what is a, a world-class product. And yeah, it's a weird time to be doing that. Although yeah. I, I, I'm very grateful for the time I've had at home. You know, I had my paternity leave late last year and did a couple of months in the office and now I'm back home with the kids. So I'm spending more time with the kids I've ever done before. So, so I'm loving that and I'm enjoying that. But yeah, it's, but for me, it's just, I've worked very hard to get where I am and I just want to execute on it and, and, and keep growing. I don't see this as the end of my journey and I want to keep learning and, and keep proving that I can deliver while in a time of COVID spending as much time with the family as I can. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm very confident this will be a very exciting few years for you and uh, we wish you all the best. Final question, Amir, for anyone listening out there that's thinking about a career move, what final piece of advice would you leave them with? Look, something I say to people all the time, whether they work for me or I kind of I work with them, just believe in yourself. I generally think that is the most important thing. I don't mean be deluded, but believe in your, the ability that you have. And it, because if you don't know one else will, and then no one's going to take a chance on you. Um, you know, if you go into a job interview or you've been given responsibility for something and you're showing your insecurity and, and how you're nervous and how you don't believe you can do it, everyone else is going to think you're going to fail as well. Um, so you're kind of setting yourself up for that to happen. And I'm very much a, a believer of, you know, you've got to have self-confidence. You've got to believe that you can achieve it. And also you've got to put, put yourself in a position to be successful. You know, you have to buy a ticket to win the lottery. You can't just randomly win it. So put yourself in that position. When that ju- chance comes, don't hold back. Believe in yourself and therefore give everything. And if you do that, there's nothing else you can do. And it might not work out, right? Uh, like I said, I've been laid off. I've been demoted. It might not work out, but at least you took the chance and you got the opportunity. So just believe in yourself. Great stuff. Amir, it's been such a pleasure. So much wisdom and wonderful mentorship in in that conversation. Thank you so much for your time. It's been great to chat to you. And uh, yeah, everyone here at JBM wishes you and CoolSign all the very best for the the years ahead. Thank you, mate. I've really, really enjoyed it. And and I hope it's of value of even to just one person. I think that will make it worthwhile for me. So yeah, thank you very much, mate. Awesome. Thank you so much. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. I really hope that you enjoyed that episode of the 40 Minute Mentor and if you did, please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders. Please also feel free to reach out at info at jbmc.co.uk. Thanks again for all your support.